0: When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft podcast. I'm your host, Tim Smith, here with Christopher Russell. Hello. Sunday afternoon, um, and we are up to... Typical summer things. We seem to have had a pile of snow outside until about four days ago, and now it's definitely summer. Yeah. There's millions of bugs. It's hot, humid, muggy.
1: Yeah, by typical summer things, we don't mean like going to the beach, hanging out in the sun. We mean cowering in our sleeping bags, hiding from the mosquitoes and black flies.
0: Yes, and yeah. it's pretty glorious. Yeah, it's
1: wonderful. Uh, we're not
0: actually in our sleeping bags right now, though. I don't. We wanna...
1: could be in about five minutes if we wanted to. <laughs> yeah.
0: build. If we had a couch, we could build a fort out
1: of the couch cushions. Oh, oh, man. man. Hide out in there. That's a pretty typical summer activity if you're seven. Yeah. Wow. Perfect.
0: <laughs> so today we want to talk about uh, assessment systems as a learning tool, how they fit into what we do here. And it's sort of a natural progression from our last discussion about the experiential anthropological approach. So that was sort of big picture you know, how we see our approach to things. And today we want to get more into, you know, the nuts and bolts of how and why we do that during our long program. So, uh, yeah,
1: all that stuff was sort of uh, pretty high-minded and it was sort of like the ideal that we're striving for. But this uh, this episode, will be, yeah, like you said, the nuts and bolts and um, how we put that into practice um, rather than just having sort of a uh, – yeah, sort of a, a a big goal that we achieve. Man, I'm really losing this. Yeah, you're struggling there, man. I'm huh? sorry. Crash? I, no, I had like about five minutes ago, my smudge pot went out. And then I had this moment that I imagine was similar to being Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, where I just looked up and there were just mosquitoes everywhere. So I'm a little, still a little punchy from running away from them to get up here. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so more nuts and bolts. How do we do it? What does it look like to design a course like that? So the idea is that um, for most of its time as an academic subject, I don't know if that would be the right way to put it, but, you know, bushcraft, outdoor living, survival skills has sort of been the realm of, You know, somebody would learn something and pass it along, like, you know, my grandpappy taught me this and that and the other thing. And we're sort of in that transitional period where, you know, one of my long-term goals has been to seek um, academic credentialing for traditional wilderness skills. And by that, I mean... You know, when I was a young guy, I was really interested in, you know, how different cultures lived close to the land. But it wasn't an option to go and study that. So I, because I wanted to do it then, it's been sort of my thing to get that into the uh, academics at this point. So we've been pretty successful with that. We've got articula- articulation agreements with two different universities. You know, our programs, I think we're in year nine or something, where we've been... Um, Uh, working with the Veterans Administration. So, you know, we've been very successful in adding an academic uh, side to traditional outdoor skills learning. Um, And, you know, the reason we've been able to do that is because we treat it like an academic subject with um, assessment systems and testing and all of those things that, you know, maybe some old timers would say that stuff has no business in outdoor education but you know in, in order to make it more legitimate you can't just have somebody uh learn a new skill or, or be demonstrated something you know? yeah
1: I, so on the last episode we talked about you know cultures and people that lived their whole lives in in um on the land and they would have a really good understanding of plants and animals and every every organism that exists they would probably know a little bit about and that was that's something that we have to play catch up on with because most modern people um in the western world don't know that and um for better or worse they grow up learning in in an academic uh fashion and so we have to kind of use that pre-existing framework in order to get people caught up on um yeah on knowing knowing the stuff that's on the land rather than just living it for your whole life and knowing you know maybe you don't know the scientific names but you know a heck of a lot more about beaver than i do just from living
0: right so um so we like to draw a distinction between our professional training programs and sort of our short courses with the idea that you know if someone's going to come and take a standards-based professional level training course that's uh academic um it's not just a show and tell you know a lot of short courses can just be demonstrating a few things but that's not a really good way to assure that people will retain that in the long term. So, you know, how do we get them to retain it? Well, we get them to write about it, reflect about it. Um, Hire a retainer. Yeah. Uh, an attorney on retainer. Obviously. Um, no. So what we, we record information over time and track progress. I think that's, in a nutshell, the simplest way to think of any assessment system. But there are three, you know, three components to it. Um a subjective component, an objective a com- a component, and a practical component. So the subjective opponent, student in their own words, they keep a logbook, they work through a variety of different workbooks while they're here. So writing about the experience that they're having. And you know, it's it's very specific to the different experiences. It's not just sort of like a generalized journaling. Um, but You know, that's been super helpful for people to keep track of exactly what they've accomplished while they're here. So the objective component is our testing component where we go out with people. So, for example, with Axe use, you know, I want them to show me, prove to me that you can do it safely and that you can instruct it safely and that you don't forget any of the big picture items. So we have students go through practical exams with things like Axe use, knife safety and use, saw use, uh, map and compass navigation, wet weather fire. So just a variety of different practical exams. Um, what are a couple others? Knots, different canoe strokes, yeah. paddling, polling, all these things. So it's, you know, prove that you have achieved a level of mastery where you can teach it to somebody else. So there's the, there's the objective, the, the testing component. And then the practical component is doing it every day you know you do something every day you just get better yeah. at it so uh, but tracking that even tracking that you know like for example how many bow drill fires have you achieved you know what woods did you use so keeping track of all that information and data yeah and again this is the first year that we've in the past we've had a pen and paper system for doing this this semester we're instigating our uh, digital system so that's uh, a big experiment in the works, and so far, I think it's been great. Yeah, super helpful for organizing the information, and and even more helpful for those students seeking academic credit or to prove to the VA, you know, what did you do when you were out there? Um, so here is all this stuff that is easily uh, transferred to the different parties involved, which was the big push for us to go digital, yeah. as it was right. So you know, where's the evidence of of learning? Um, so that's a big part of it. Uh, so the other, you know, in addition to the, the uh, academic side with the testing is it just takes a lot of study on the part of the student. You know, we talked about a 100% experiential course, um, I think, in the last podcast. But the idea is that, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be either 100% experiential or 100% academic. I think to maximize learning opportunities, it has to be a mix of the two. Meaning, so if we go out and, you know, we're doing a plant walk, so to speak, and I say, okay, here's, here's plant X, um, Latin name, common name, family in in Latin and English. Uh, Here's what I've used it for. And that's, people will get a little bit of of insight into that. But, uh, you know, it's much better when they go back and then do uh, structured, focused academic research on that. But, you know, what have other people, what have other cultures used this plant for? Um, and then to add, you know, add into that, the practical component of having them actually eat the plant and say whether they like it or not, um, I think is a huge part as well. So, you know, in this field, in this industry, often, you know, field courses are just sort of show and tell. And I think that, you know, with what we do with blending the experiential and the academic, um, I think that's, we get better learning outcomes as a result.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, we, I think that with, um, Pairing the experiential and the academic, as well as that sort of subjective, like them writing down what they are experiencing up here, that gives anything that we teach, they get sort of three, appro- three different insights into it. And that really helps it, you know, for different learning styles and all that stuff. Having three different ways of uh, learning about the thing really hammers it home for, you know, anybody that comes up here, whether you learn better from academics or by doing, there's something up here that's going to make it stick for you.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and just this past week, we really got into doing some of the uh, objective tests and, the you know, the practical exams for the course. Yeah. And it's really it's such a great opportunity for students to demonstrate and show what they know. Um, and I think, you know, any good assessment system, that's why it's there is to have a student kind of know where they exist on that continuum of complete beginner to, you know, lifelong expert. And, you know, watching students as we, excuse me, as we work through the tests, realize, you know, as they prepare for the test, they realize where the holes are in their knowledge yeah. and then they go back and prepare for it. And without that testing bit, because um, there were, you know, a long time ago, years ago, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't used to do the practical exams and things. And, um, you know, I think that the students have much better learning outcomes as
1: a result. Yeah. Or, I mean, on the other hand, they, you know, I had a canoe, we had a sort of canoe lift and carries practical exam the other day. And there was a student that was worried about it and didn't think he physically could do the lifts and stuff. And then we got out there and um, he just, he just did it. And I think that that's, you, you either learn where the gaps are or you get sort of a, a chance to let yourself know how how far you've come like from the start of the course where, you know, when we started doing lifts, he had sh- trouble with it. And then the other day we did it and it wasn't an issue at all. And that's, that's a really great like aha moment for students, I think.
0: Hugely. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the issues we run into on our nine-week semester courses, because we're constantly pushing people, because we're constantly introducing new things, is people don't get the sort of, Uh, they don't get to kind of relax and be like, wow, I've really come really far with that Mm -hmm. because we're off onto something else. And and I think it's a great point, like you mentioned, that that's a a big eye opener where people realize, hey, you know, Mm -hmm. I I can do this. You -hmm. know, I have come a long way from where
1: I started. Yeah. You know, you have students that come up here from, you know, suburban or urban areas and come up here knowing pretty much nothing about about this stuff. And then by the end of the nine weeks when, with that testing, they realize that they they've become competent at something that they had no experience in before. And that's a super empowering thing for students, regardless of background, but as, especially for people that come up here knowing nothing, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's why they come, right? Yeah. That's, that's oh, yeah, why, you run, Absolutely. why you run courses is so that people will have solid, positive, educational yeah. outcomes
1: yeah absolutely
0: um so yeah i feel really good about that I, I i really enjoy the uh the testing um you know running it just because you get to see people uh you know sort of mm-hmm. demonstrate not only their competence when up su- with the specific material but you get to see their confidence really swell and improve like you know when someone passes like an axmanship practical exam i mean they're for for a while anyway they're 10 feet tall and bulletproof yeah And that's it's just fun to be around, you know, any any educator of of in any capacity, I think, you know, being there when a student has that aha moment and all of a sudden, you know, they've they've changed from when you first encountered them as a result of the information and knowledge. And wisdom that they can now demonstrate, you know, they're a different person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And
0: to be there and see that confidence change and and see them grow, it's just awesome, right? Why, I mean, people don't go into teaching for the money, you know, like find me, find me a public school teacher who's like, I'm only here for the big bucks, you know, it it doesn't exist. No. Um, You know, but the, the other benefits, the benefits of being there when people have that aha moment. Those are huge,
1: Yeah, I think. They make it totally worth it, I think.
0: So one of the things that we have people do is uh, learn, uh, as we're going around learning about the different plants on the landscape here, is they have to um, learn the Latin name, the common name, and uh, family in English and Latin. And that's super helpful, you know, because no matter where you go, Uh, that plant if it's in the latin name you can go to any country in the world and it's still the same latin name but because it's challenging we'll often get people who are like oh why do i have to learn this you know i I hate this uh, uh latin stuff it's so complicated so i have a story from my past that i'd like to share that i always like to uh to bring up um you know when we're doing that in the field so when i was in the I think I was in the 7th grade. 6th grade or 7th grade. I can't remember which. I love Tiny Tim stories. This is my favorite (laughs) part. Let's say 6th grade. I'm in the 6th grade. And my friends and I in our little rural New Hampshire town, we used to go out in the woods and track deer and, uh, you know, have campfires and cook stuff on the campfire. Just a really well-spent kind of rural childhood. So one of my friends... His dad had this book, and I still have a copy in the library. It was called The Wild Food Trail Guide by a guy named Alan Hall. And it was the first edible wild plant book I had ever seen. I think it was published in like the early 70s. Uh, the guy on the cover, he's got a wicked like early 70s or summer of love hairdo. Nice. Like you can tell by looking at the cover like, oh, yeah, that's from this era. Um, but great little book on edible wild plants. So, and you know, we there was no internet at the time. There was no like, Oh, I'll just look on my phone and have access to millions and millions of articles on edible plants. Like Nope. And none of us had ever seen a book on edible plants other than this one at the time. You know, we were just what 12 years old or something. So what we would bring that out with us and you know, we'd look up the plants that we knew and we'd always try to learn new plants while we were out. And one of the plants in there is the Eastern hemlock, the tree, uh, and it is in the pine family, and you can eat the inner bark. And I've eaten a fair amount of inner bark since then, and it tastes about what you imagine the inner bark of a pine family. Sad tree. Christmas. <laughs> That's what it tastes. It tastes like. like sad Christmas. It tastes like sad <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> anyway, so and the again, the point of this story is the importance of the Latin name versus the common name. So we're out, and uh, one of the kids had a pocket knife, and we had a campfire. And at the time, when we were kids, you know, for hand warmers, you would heat up a baked potato in the microwave or just cook it. And then you'd stick, wrap it in like a paper towel and stick it in your pocket. So it would stay warm for like three hours. And then you'd eat it when it was cool enough to eat. So I had a baked potato in my
1: pocket. When we, So we tell <laughs> students up here all the time that you hobo up in that you, you know, you you embrace the hobo lifestyle while you're up here. But what we just learned is that Tim has been hoboing up since he was 12 it's not homeless, it's home free. Exactly, and you've been living the life for forever. <laughs> just a baked potato in your pocket. And baked potato in my pocket. Nothing a, to lose. It was a
0: cold winter
1: day, and I think somebody brought,
0: that day, somebody brought like some steak or something. I just remember like meat on a stick cooking over the fire, and there were probably five of us out there. Anyway, we're like three quarters of a mile from a road out behind one of my friend's places, and we found this new beaver pond that we didn't know was there. Um, you know, just lots of fun for kids had a campfire, and my friend had brought his copy of the Wild Food Trail Guide, so the kid with the pocket knife, we found a hemlock tree, scraped out some of the inner bark, we all tried it, and you know again it 's sad it, christmas okay uh, so but it was just a really great, fantastic day in in my young life, so I remember getting home that evening, and my mom uh was talking to me and she says oh what'd you do today tim and i said oh it was a great day i was out with the guys you know we were out behind uh this one guy's house we hiked out found this stream followed it up found a beaver pond we had a campfire and she's just nodding like oh that's great you know like nodding along i'm like we had a campfire we cooked some meat we ate some hemlock and that's where the records get (laughs) it was like okay and she's like wait you ate what and I said, we ate hemlock. You know, the uh, we've got this book, The Wild Food Trail Guide. It says all the wild plants you can eat. And she just starts freaking out. And she says, get up to your room. So I go up to my room, but, you know, small house. I can hear everything that's going on. So she gets on the phone to Poison Control. And she's, you know, I can hear her talking to the guy at Poison Control. And she says, my son just ate Poison Hemlock. You know, and, you know. What I could glean from the conversation was that I had about 15 minutes to live, <laughs> right? And I remember sitting there in my room at 12 years old uh, thinking, you know, I guess I had a pretty good life. Uh, I, I don't really have anything to be upset about, you know. Got I, a potato. I would have liked to have lived longer, but, you know, I, I wasn't like a sub-Saharan child soldier or, you know, I had a family that loved me and, and, and um, you know, I had a pretty pretty great life. So I guess if this is it, this is it, and I'm going to the grave with a with a smile on my face, um, hey! But it, you know, the turns out that I didn't die. No, <laughs> and it turns out that there are several plants named hemlock with the common name. There is the tree in the pine family, um, uh, Suga Canadensis, and then there is the poison water hemlock in the carrot family of Secuta Maculata, and they have nothing in common. They're not related at all. They just share this common name right so the plant that we were eating um you know pinus
1: uh suga canadensis pinus
0: suga canadensis or eastern hemlock is a big tree in the pine family and the other one is a herb in the carrot family um maculata no relation at all so at 12 years old because i thought that my life was over and i was going to be dead uh, i learned very clearly the value of positively identifying plants and I learned that the reason why there are those scientific names for plants is because there's only one Secuta Maculata. There is only one, uh, East, uh, Super <laughs> There can there's be only, only one Highlander. There can be only Oh, that's one. right. There can be, yeah. There were a bunch of them at the beginning of the movie. And then at the end, yeah. there was only one. And then
1: I think, didn't they have like eight sequels? I don't know, but I really want Sean Connery's hat from it. That <laughs> I want that to be my goofy hat when we're paddling. Big uh, feather.
0: Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so the idea is that there is a reason why you have to learn those specific things. And if I go to Siberia, if I'm on the Kamchatka Peninsula up there, or if I go to like Finland, or if I go to, you know, uh, Hudson Bay, Secuta Maculata is still Secuta Maculata, but I can, you know, throw a stick here and find a few people within the radius of how far I could throw a stick that would refer to different plants differently. So, the idea of common names is you're just always right when you're saying something's a common name. You know, the idea that uh, uh, we have a joke around here that if you can't identify a plant, you know, there's a there's a formula. It's an old main guide trick. Yeah, we're sharing trade secrets here, guys. <laughs> the old main guide trick, if you don't know a plant, is uh, pick an animal, a mammal that lives in that bioregion, and then pick a part of the plant. So if someone says, hey, what's that plant? And I don't know what it is. I'm like, oh, that's, that's uh, deerberry. And that's mouse leaf, uh, moose root. So you see the, you see the trend. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, we say this sort of jokingly, but, but with a common name, you're still right, you know, because maybe somebody does call it that somewhere. There's no like, uh, there's no encyclopedia of common names for plants where it's a definitive ID.
1: Yeah. And there's nobody to raise the BS flag on you either. That's sort of the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Moose root sounds like an awesome ice cream flavor. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm being helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So just from
0: the perspective of, you know, why bother studying? Why learn the scientific names for things? It's because they're super specific. And no matter where you go, they won't change. And you probably know, if you're at all interested in wild plants for food or medicine, you probably know of a plant that has numerous names, right? So, for example, uh, Cornus canadensis, the bunchberry or the dwarf flowering dogwood. Uh, So, I just named two. I did the Latin name and then two different um, common names. So... You could conceivably be in a discussion with somebody where you're saying it's bunchberry and they're saying, no, it's dwarf flowering dogwood, and you're both right. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, if you had said cornus canadensis, you quickly cut to the chase and uh, you'll know that you're talking about the same plant. Therein lies the beauty of the scientific naming system for plants.
1: Yeah, and it also, you know, like you're saying, wherever you go, um, the stuff is the same and that you know, we talked about it a few podcasts ago, but that's another reason why learning this system means that wherever you go after, you know, maybe you go home and want to learn more about the place that you live. This having the scientific name of a plant or an animal or any whatever it is you're looking at allows you. It, it's a great base to start studying that on, rather than having this, you know, some old guy down the street tells you that the plant is called whatever. And Moose root. Have, moose root and then you have to look up uh you have to like filter through that but if somebody if you find the latin name that's sort of the key to your research which yeah if people not everybody that comes here is from maine they're going to go to different biomes and want to learn more about the place they live in and that scientific name and system allows them to figure it out much quicker than talking to the old guy who thinks a dandelion is called moose root
0: yeah No, agreed. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. And, you know, as we tell people during our programs here, if you want to embrace the wild food lifestyle or just start to learn more about the nature around you, two components to that. Number one is getting a positive field ID. And that's where it's really helpful to go on a walk with someone who knows the plant. um, Because it's really hard to do from books. You know, even if you have some legitimate university botanical training, it's still not easy. You're using big keys and things. Um, so it's really helpful to have somebody there, but once you can get a positive field ID, then, you know, the internet and a variety of different books, they're your friend. So, uh, because if you can go out and find the plant, it's, it's not super difficult to go find information about that specific species. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I guess that's it it for today. Um, so thank you for spending this time with us on this lovely Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. If you found this thing useful or you want to help us spread the word, leave us a review or send, send it to somebody. Let, let, let people know what uh, we're up to up here. But thanks again for listening. Hope you guys have a great day. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.